Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Episode 20 of Discovering the Old Testament. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I hope for you as well. Your continued support of this project means a lot, so I hope you will take a moment and make a contribution to this podcast at lofkospress.com. Judges is what we might call a transitional book, but that also sells it a bit short. Yes, it describes the people of Israel when they were a largely loose confederation of tribes, which makes for some pretty interesting and eccentric reading. But, as with all things, context is important, and it's actually past time that we introduce some context that also applies to the book of Joshua and the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Kings, and Samuel are part of a larger literary unit known to modern scholars as the Deuteronomistic History. It's so-called partly because the style and theological issues under discussion are consistent with the book of Deuteronomy, and I believe it is also named Deuteronomistic as some kind of perverse linguistic practical joke. Kidding aside for the moment, this segment of the Old Testament is believed to have been written, or at least given its final form, fairly late in Israel's history. The book of Deuteronomy and the following books mentioned were set down according to a theological agenda addressing the problem of why Israel had failed as a people. According to the Deuteronomic school, the main reason for that failure was the neglect and abandonment of the covenant that God had made with Moses. Failure to abide by the Mosaic law mainly brought Israel to destruction. Naturally, when you dig deeper, it gets a bit more complicated than that, but we'll get to that later. What is interesting for our purposes is that the books from Joshua through Kings are books with a lot of historical content, but it is all viewed through a theological lens. Telling the history is not the purpose of these books, and modern readers would do well to always keep that in mind. They are using historical events, figures, and trends to make theological points and explore theological questions. One of the biggies is the question of kingship. I say explore theological questions because the Deuteronomists were smart enough not to wax too doctrinaire about this particular question. In fact, it's fair to say that there is a debate even within this stratum of text. The book of Judges, the subject of this podcast, describes a time when Israel barely qualifies as a nation in any sense. Earlier scholars wanted to see it as a coalition of tribes centered around a sanctuary, namely the tabernacle housing the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark itself. Others saw the sanctuary as a seat of law that formed a political nucleus for Israel. Both models are no longer accepted by scholars for the simple reason that there are no signs anywhere in the Bible of any rules or guidelines for such an organization. In fact, most of the time when the tribes work together, it's only a very few tribes and not always the same ones. Even Barak and Deborah, two of the most famous judges, 
only managed to swing six tribes in behind them. It would probably be generous to call this a confederation, but let's go with that for now. However, as we said, this is a theological document with a theological agenda. That agenda is to define and point out an almost karmic cyclical process that repeats itself throughout Judges and shows up a few times later on. Here's how the cycle runs. First, things are peaceful, and everything is fine. Second, the Israelites fall away from their religion and start worshiping other gods. Third, God hands them over to foreign oppressors who enslave the Israelites. Fourth, the Israelites, realizing that they screwed up, cry to God to deliver them. Fifth, God raises up a charismatic leader of some kind, a judge. The Spirit of God comes upon this leader that renders them able to rally the people, defeat the oppressors, and save Israel. Then there is peace and God's favor until forgetfulness and another apostasy starts the whole cycle over again. This cycle first shows up in Judges, and it is considered a defining characteristic of this book. However, this cycle also shows up in other parts of the Deuteronomistic history. In fact, one could argue that the Deuteronomists see the whole course of Israel's history as one giant single iteration of this process, beginning with the entry into the Promised Land and ending with the destruction of Solomon's Temple. There are several factors that complicate judges for the average reader. First, the various judges and their exploits are not given in chronological order. However, the cycle that we see articulated with the first judge, Othniel, starts to get more ragged and chaotic with succeeding judges. By the time we reach the last judge, Samson, things have more or less descended to the level of a bad comic book, with some of Samson's exploits looking and sounding more like practical jokes when he isn't busy smiting Philistines, and sometimes when he is. A word about the different judges. We find two kinds of judges in the book of Judges. The major judges are the ones that take up most of the narratives, the charismatic leaders raised up by God to deliver Israel. We also find passing references to what scholars call minor judges. The term notwithstanding, with the exception of Deborah, the major judges don't seem to have done any actual, well, judging. They did not make legal decisions or law. However, many scholars believe that the minor judges were the actual adjudicators. There remains the question of how both types of leaders got to be called judges. One kind of flimsy theory is that one of these figures, Jephthah, is both a tribal hero and listed as one of the minor judges. The theory runs that if he was a regular judge, then perhaps the heroic judges also had a judicial function as well. It's pretty thin, like I said. A better theory is based on an ancient text from the nearby city of Mari, dated to roughly 1800 BCE, where we find an official with a title roughly akin to the word used for judge in Hebrew, but whose job description looks and feels more like that of a regional governor. Returning to the main theme of the book, the overall message of Judges is that this cycle of theological boom and bust is not sustainable. 
even though Israel keeps coming back to God, keeps getting rescued by divine intervention, the cumulative effect is that the nation deteriorates. It is especially interesting to see how this happens in various local, social, religious, and political institutions. By the time we reach the end of the book, Israel is considerably worse off than she was when she entered Canaan. A casual assessment of the book would be that the reign of the judges acts as a counterexample to demonstrate the need for an Israelite king, in other words, to justify the creation of a monarchy. And on one level, that is clearly what's happening. The crisis of disunity in the face of better organized adversaries continues into the book of First Samuel where the threat posed by the Philistines demands a tighter, more centralized authority, and the people ask for a king. But the Deuteronomists were a fairly sophisticated bunch. Even though they recognized the need for kingship, they were not enthralled intellectually or theologically by the institution. From time to time, both in and out of the Deuteronomistic history, there are hints of a yearning for the time of the judges, we might perhaps compare it to the cultural nostalgia for the time of the Wild West. For heaven's sake, even Star Trek, which is about as far from the Wild West as one can get, in its various television franchises can't seem to resist doing at least one episode that puts their characters into an Old West setting. Our nostalgia celebrates the rugged individuals carving a nation out of the trackless wilderness through grit and ingenuity, where the good guys and the bad guys were clearly identified and their respective fates all but certain. And just as our mythology ignores those who succumbed to hardship, disease, starvation, or plain old bad luck, or lost their gains to corrupt corporate interests, bushwhackers, and so on, to say nothing of the fate of uncounted Native Americans who died and the uncounted more who were forced onto reservations, well, clearly our Wild West mythology is less about history than culture. The same is true of judges, but it makes their quite unflinching assessment of the frontier days of ancient Israel just that much more remarkable. Yes, it's colorful, even heroic and there are plenty of things to recommend some, though not all, of the values embodied in the stories found there. But at some point, civilization had to solidify, or Israel ran the risk of disintegrating into a rabble that no leader, no matter how charismatic, could effectively govern. <laughs> The cycle of peace, falling away, oppression, divine rescue, and so on, does not need a lot of commentary. Read a few chapters in Judges and you'll see it. We need not spend any more time on it here. That leaves us free to look at some of those institutions that serve as markers of social viability in the text. There are also some leaders that deserve our attention, and we'll look at them. One of the big stories is that of Barak and Deborah, 
two judges who are credited with saving Israel from a Canaanite army of King Jabin, led by his general Sisera. Deborah is specifically referred to as a prophetess, and unlike most of the other Israelite judges, she actually renders judgments regularly on matters brought before her. Under her guidance and Barak's leadership on the battlefield, plus a dash of divine intervention, the Israelite army destroys the Canaanite army. There's a coda to the defeat of the Philistines under Sisera that is very important. After the battle, Sisera's army is slaughtered and he is on the run. He sees a tent and goes there to ask for shelter. The man of the house is away, but the wife, Yael, is home, and she offers hospitality to Sisera. Sisera asks for food, and Yael gives him some milk. Not what he ordered, but he was probably too tired to be picky. He requests Yael to turn away any inquiries from anyone who came looking for him. Soon he falls asleep. Yael then takes a tent peg and a mallet, and with the latter drives the former through Sisera's temple, killing him. When Barak turns up, Yael shows them Sisera, and the matter is settled. The defeat of the Canaanites is complete. Now, I'm focusing on hospitality as one of those social institutions that judges tracks through its changes, because if you've been listening to this podcast, you should have a pretty fair idea by now of how that works and what the expectations were. Upon hearing the story of Yael, some alarm bells should be going off in your head right about now. Didn't Yael just commit a pretty massive violation of the hospitality regulations, you might ask? And the answer is, yes, she did. Now, in a proper, civilized society, that would be considered unacceptable, even when the guest is an enemy. A Bedouin proverb has it that one must give hospitality and shelter for the night even to your father's murderer. After he leaves the next day, however, that protection no longer holds. Even though Deborah had prophesied that Sisera would die at the hands of a woman, this is serious stuff. But nothing happens to Yael. No divine sanction and no social consequences. Things are clearly not working the way they are supposed to. One quick item before we move on, and that is the following section in chapter 5, which we call the Song of Deborah. For purposes of both biblical scholarship and the history of the Hebrew language, this poem is one of the oldest examples of Hebrew that we have in the Bible. We can tell this based on certain features of the original Hebrew, or perhaps we should say the lack of features that arrived much later. We can also compare this to other examples of very old Hebrew found in ancient inscriptions that were written long before the time of the Hebrew monarchy, when the Hebrew language really settled into what became normative biblical Hebrew. Now I want to skip to chapter 19, and I warn you, this is a truly ghastly story. This is the tale of the Levite's concubine. A Levite is traveling with his concubine and comes to the city of Gibeah, of the tribe of Benjamin. He is standing out in the town square where he will spend the night when an old man comes out and offers him shelter at his house. While they are there, a familiar scene happens. 
the men of the city gather around the house and threaten to rape the Levite. The host offers to send out his virgin daughter and the concubine to ravish. The Levite ends up throwing his concubine to the men, and she is raped through the night and dies on the doorstep. In the morning, the Levite takes her body, cuts it into twelve pieces, and sends one piece to each tribe and tells them what happened. As you might expect, this gets their attention. The verdict is that Benjamin is guilty and worthy of extermination, and the combined tribal forces engage Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes. But Benjamin puts up a good fight, and the Israelites, despite a huge numerical advantage, make a total mess of things. Eventually, Benjamin and the rest of the Israelite tribes make a deal by which Benjamin survives extermination. This whole story is one giant cock-up from beginning to end. The guest should never be the one who sacrifices a family member in a hospitality situation, but that's what happens. The crime of the Benjaminites, obviously mimicking that of Sodom, should bring extermination. But even when all the rest of the tribes of Israel are united, and this is one of the very few times in Judges that that actually happens, they can't even get that part right. Far more than is the case with Yael, this particular social institution has almost completely broken down. Israel's ability to enforce basic social institutions is almost farcical in its incompetence. Later, in the early part of the book of Samuel, they're faced with a serious Philistine military coalition. If they can't handle a few Benjaminites, however handy they are with a sling and a stone, what hope have they against the far more numerous and disciplined Philistines? As a people, the Israelites have to grow up and become a kingdom, and they know it. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music